The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And would everyone please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1, you will find these words. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And verse 6 is our verse of emphasis. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. In our series of lessons on the mind, the making, and the ministry of Jesus Christ, we're dealing with the Beatitudes, amen, and in the Beatitudes today, we're dealing with the Beatitudes and the Beatitudes part four, amen, the Beatitudes part four. I read in your hearing the other verses because it gives us context and gives us movement to deal with each and every beatitude. First of all, let's go back and let's realize who Matthew is talking to and what he's trying to say about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, Matthew is speaking to the Jews. And he's speaking to the Jews about Jesus as king. In all of the roles that Jesus plays in this particular gospel, it's about Jesus as king. And the Beatitudes is just the introduction to a broader sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount consists of chapters 5, 6, and 7. We can treat the Sermon on the Mount as the manifesto of the King. His aims, his desires, his requirements, his manifesto. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The King has a kingdom agenda. Jesus says, I am a king. Yes, you're right, Pilate. But my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would have not allowed me to be delivered unto the Jews. And he said, my kingdom is not of this realm. He is a king of a kingdom that's not of this world and it's not of this realm and now his manifesto 
introduction is being given to us and he tells us what his desire is. His desire is to bring happiness. Everybody's looking for happiness in one way or another. People love America because we're supposed to have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. But most people never find it. They never find it because they're looking in all the wrong places. And in our current culture, we are entertained out of our minds. We've got every manner of entertainment possible. We can go all different places and watch movies and theater presentations and there's all kind of entertainment with games and now we've got the internet and the mobile internet and everywhere we are we can have Netflix and Amazon Prime on our tablets and on our phone. We're flying on the airplane to California and they say we got good news for you passengers. We're going to give you something for free. We're going to give you TV and you can look at it on your computers, on your tablets and on your phones. Because we are an entertained world. We are a culture of entertainment. And everybody is looking for happiness. We find ourselves going to the movies and watching shows to come out of what the realities are of this life so that we can find a time of peace and what we call happiness. But if we tell the truth, in all the things that we do, we may have a little glimpse of something that feels comforting, but is fleeting all the time. And at the end of the day, we end up empty. I was talking at another time about looking no further than the owner of Playboy magazine, Hugh Hefner. From a man's perspective in this world, he's reached the epitome. He's reached the top of it all. That he's got all these women around him all day long. And they're young as he wants them to be or old as he wants them to be. Tall or as short. Wide and as skinny. It don't matter. He's got whatever he wants. And they're running around half naked or naked. And he don't even have to get dressed. But he's wearing his robe. But I saw an interview with Hugh Hefner. And he was sitting there in his robe, and I looked in that man's eyes. And I could see the emptiness on his face. That after he has gotten all these riches from all these sales of Playboy, and all the around events, and all of the Playboy mansion, and all of the decadence that comes with it, he's still empty. If he would be honest, he would say, I've gotten all of this. And is that all it is? In his face, he had this blank stare of uh, almost being numb because he's done all of these things and it's come up to be zero. But that's what the enemy will do. The enemy wants you to believe that you can find happiness in the things in this world. Wants you to believe that the, that, that the life of a person consists of the abundance of things that he possesses. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. You will not 
be fulfilled by the things of this world. That happiness is deceptive, it's fool's gold, and it's fleeting. And after you've gotten and ran and worked and did everything and made all the money and got all the big houses, got all the fancy cars, got the best women or got the best men, at the end of the day, if you don't have Christ, you're not going to be happy. At the end of the day, when it's time for you to close your eyes, you will not be happy. Because you know you got to put a place that you know nothing about. But Jesus, the king, has come with this manifesto. He has come with these words. He has come with this introduction of his manifesto to say that happy is. In this text, when you see the word blessed, you can replace it or substitute it with the word happy. So happy are the poor. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. And happy are those who are home. Now can you imagine how the Jews, the listeners at that very time must have felt when they thought that they were in the end crowd, that they had already had the keys because they were children of Abraham and had been circumcised and they had the Sabbath and that they were doing the things they thought they already possessed everything that they needed. And here comes Jesus, instead of coming with a message of military overthrow of Rome, he says, no, no, I'll bring you happiness, but it ain't coming the way you think you ought to come. He says, happiness comes when you come to me saying, I'm empty. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm not right in any way. Oh, wretched man that I am. Mm. Happiness comes when we first start with acknowledging that we are wretches undone. And that we need to be rearranged and changed and rebuilt by the master. Happiness starts there. Happiness starts when we mourn over our sin. That's where happiness starts, when we start looking at how sinful we are and mourning because we can't fix it ourselves. But it lets us know that those who mourn will what? They will be comforted. Because God's got a way of comforting you and taking care of those things that you cannot take care of yourself. But that's how happiness comes. Happiness doesn't come from the things of this world. It doesn't come from the entertainment industry. It comes from the king. But the king ain't going to let you come to him any old kind of way. I know we got this easy believism going on these days about how we can come to Christ these funny kind of ways and we give a hand to the preacher and the heart to God. Then we start going back out and doing what we do. And God knows my heart. Yeah, he knows your heart. And that's an indictment. That's not a good thing because God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We got to get back to what Jesus says about how to be happy. He says, happy are those who are meek. The only way you will get meek is that you see the holiness of a holy God. When you start to look at how holy God is, how sinless and holy he is, then you become meek. You become a person who isn't always standing up for my own rights, 
I got to have my way. It's my right that I get to do this and do that. What about me? What can I get? What are you going to do for me? And you start looking and saying, what can I do for somebody else? Because the holy God of the universe has done for me something I can't do for myself. Now that's what happens when you're happy. And it's coming from the king. And he ain't looking for nothing else but the way of happiness that he requires. And you have to be these things and then you are happy. It's not happy and then that is those and then happiness comes. So then we look and we see that it said blessed in verse 6. Or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Imagine those Israelites. Just like church folk today. If Jesus is saying that to us, we're saying, wait a minute. They were surely saying, aren't we already righteous? Because we're the children of Abraham. And Lord, you said in your word in the 15th chapter of Genesis that because Abraham believed, you accounted unto him righteousness. And we are the children of Abraham, therefore we get the blessing of Abraham, therefore we are righteous. Jesus said, no, that's not how it works. You're going to have to search and hunger and thirst for righteousness yourself. There is a personal responsibility as being a kingdom citizen. The kingdom agenda is the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our lives. Every area. Not just our church life, but our work life, but our relationships, but for our, our, our vacationing, our relaxation, it's over every area. It's not hunger and thirst for righteousness plus something else. Because think about this for a minute. Hungering and thirsting. We in America don't understand hunger and thirst like third world countries do. We understand hunger as I haven't eaten since this morning and at best it's 9 o'clock at night and I haven't eaten and I'm feeling a little woozy. But how about days on end of not being able to eat? Not being able to find drinking water because all the drinking water is foul and full of contaminants. See, we don't understand it that way, but in this text, he's talking about a real hunger, a real thirst that goes beyond, hey, I got breakfast, but I didn't get lunch. Or I didn't get breakfast and I didn't get to eat till dinner. I'm talking about some real hunger. And some real hunger when their backs are reaching their fronts. Some real hunger like we see them children with the big stomachs. They look like they've eaten something, but they ain't eating nothing at all. Their body is thrown into strange ways and it's acting funny because it's in such a lack of what it needs. But that's how we looked before Jesus stepped into our lives. We were famine. We were in a famine because we had no spirit. Our spirits were dead in the trespasses and sin. 
But the text says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it then throws in something else that, well, if I know the Lord, do I still need to hunger and thirst? Yes. Because the text, if we were able to look at it in its case and tense from the, uh, from the Greek perspective, we would find that when it says thirst for righteousness, the Greek language has a way of talking about a portion of something. So in other words, it could read we hunger and thirst for some righteousness. All right. But this text is talking about a conclusive, a comprehensive righteousness that we thirst for all righteousness. Now if we just needed some righteousness, we'd be all right. Because we probably get some righteousness in now. But all righteousness is an eternal righteousness that comes from God. That you can't get it all because you can't get all of God. But as one who needs the Savior, you thirst for righteousness. But as one who has him, you continue. Because we know even though we have been saved and sanctified, that we're still sinning. So we ought to be hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God because the righteousness of God is the only thing that can take us from sinful to sinless. Yes, we ought to always be hungering for righteousness. And in this world, there's a lot of different hungers that I've mentioned. But I want to go back for a moment and talk about a hunger from the word of God from a particular individual whose name is Lucifer. Lucifer, the son of the morning, he had a hunger. He had a hunger for power, for position, for worship. Isaiah chapter 14 lets us know that he had a hunger for the seat of God. He said, I will ascend into the heavens and I will sit and be like God. He had a hunger for a position that he was not qualified to be in. And it cost him a judgment where God cast him down to Sheol. He was a beautiful angel who had been given a wonderful position to be in charge of all the angels in worship. But he got too big for his own britches, colloquially speaking. And he tried to ascend to be in the position of God. There are some that are trained to be in the position of God here on earth over other folks' lives. They got a hunger to control somebody. But that kind of hunger will never end in righteousness. Some people are hungering experiences, just like Solomon. Solomon being the wisest man that ever lived, he still had within him the sin nature. Yes, he had the most wisdom, but he was still fighting with the flesh. And his problem was he hungered for experiences. All of those concubines and all of those wives, all of those relationships with the queens and all of the the exploits that he got himself into, all of those things, at the end of the day, he said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now, that's from the wisest man who ever lived. And he's saying you can run after all of the experiences you want to. 
You can try to go and get all of the sensual positions and all of this other stuff, all these relationships and all these experiences, and at the end of the day, it's going to be empty because it still is not going to bring you happiness. So now as I come further into this text and thinking about now the question comes, well, what does thirsting and hunger after righteousness look like? Well, a good place to start is how hungry are you for the word? How hungry are you to know God in his word? How hungry are you to read his scriptures? How hungry are you to do the will of the master? How hungry are you to get and eat of the scrolls? Because if you have no hunger for the word, you're not thirsting and hungering after righteousness. Because righteousness is found in these scriptures. If you're comfortable going week after week without ever opening your Bible, without listening to the Word of God, but listening to everything else, then you're not thirsting and hungering after righteousness. But I want to say something to you about righteousness. As water and food is to the physical bodies living, so is righteousness to the, to the spiritual. You can't live one day spiritually without righteousness. So we should be thirsting and hungering after it and it starts with a desire to thirst for his word. We got to have an appetite for God's word if we're going to be thirsting and hungering after righteousness. But if we are not there, it's a real good time to get with our master because it may just be we don't have the relationship with Jesus that we think we have. And we need to make sure that we're in a right relationship with him because at the end of the day, you don't want to be like those in that parable were saying, Lord, Lord, let us in. And he said, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we work miracles in your name? Didn't we walk out between the scorpions? Didn't we do those things? And he says, I have never known you. You got to have a thirst after righteousness. Because see, your gifts can trick you up. Because the Bible says the gifts that God gives are given without repentance. So your gifts does not necessarily denote what your character is. But this manifesto, this introduction will allow us to see our character. And will allow us to get a chance to see are we what God requires us to be. So this is a good time to really have an introspective about where we are. Are we really thirsting after righteousness? Because the only way that we're going to get righteousness is to thirst after it. Because the text says, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they shall be filled. You're not going to be filled with the righteousness of God unless you first thirst and hunger for it. But we cannot live one day in this life without righteousness spiritually. So this is a very important beatitude to get about in a hurry. So start looking at our lives during the week. Is our lives consisting of Desiring 
things like watching scandal on TV or watching a whole lot of TV and a lot of entertainment. Is that what we do when we leave here? Or do we ever turn on the radio and listen to Christian radio and get some teaching? Ever crack our Bibles with some commentary and start thirsting after righteousness? Because if not, you will not be filled. And it's a very dangerous thing to go around this life believing that I'm all right with God just because one day I had a decision I made. That I came to be baptized. That is not enough. If you have to have a life of righteousness, hey Reverend, God bless you, God. You have to have a life of righteousness, thirsting after his word. And not just reading his word, but being a doer of his word. Because faith without works is dead. Yeah, pastor, I read my Bible every day. That's good. That's a good start. But are you doing it? This life is about obedience. And here the manifesto of the king says, this is how you do So today we got to get right about this very thing is getting on page with the king. Because it is the kingdom agenda. It is his comprehensive rule over every aspect of our lives. It's his agenda, not ours. We can't come to the Lord and say, well, this is how I think I'll be a Christian. No, he has specific requirements that we need to meet that he gives. And we need to align up with him. He's not going to align with us. Because he is the king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So today I encourage the saints of God to take a look on our insides. I, as I take a look on myself and you as yourselves, are we thirsting and hungering after righteousness? Because remember, when a man is hungry, he don't want food and a suit. He doesn't want food and a ticket to the movies. He wants food and food alone because he hungers for it. You don't want to have to be hungry for righteousness and you want righteousness plus some illicit relationship. Or you want righteousness plus some other sexual immoral situation or some other try to go for righteousness and then lie and cheat on your job. Righteousness and cheating on your test at school. That's not righteousness. When you hunger for righteousness, you don't want nothing else. When you're thirsty, and today I've been doing a lot of sweating here. God bless Sister Jackie and Sister Bowman for telling me, hey, you need to get out of that suit. Amen. Took that suit off, the whole coat was dreaming, dreaming wet, and my shirt was completely wet. God bless y'all. But you know what? I didn't come back in and say, you know, I'm looking to come in here and uh, uh, read a novel right quick and then maybe go in here and eat a piece of candy. I was thirsty. And what I asked my my wife for was water. And I didn't want nothing else. I had this drink to help with my voice, but I didn't want that either. I wanted water. I wanted pure water. And when you're hungry, or thirst for righteousness, you want pure righteousness. And it only comes from God. You can't get it nowhere else. You can't get it in no ex- 
experience in this world. You can't get it by control. You can only get it by submitting to God. Amen. Amen. Praise the name of the Lord. So as I close this text, I can't go no further without talking more about the king. Because the king is more than a king. The king is a priest, as we saw in Sunday school. But he's also a savior. The lambs and the bullocks that the Jews had sacrificed at Shiloh for a hundred years and then at Jerusalem they were lambs and they were sacrifices but not like this as John the Baptist said behold the lamb of God who take us away the sins of the whole world now this king in his role as savior the bible says that one night in the garden of the Gethsemane that he prayed and it was like he was sweating like drops of blood because of the anguish for what was to come. He had a bitter cup that was made only for him. And Jesus himself even said to the father if there be any other way but he was so obedient and so meek that he said, but not my will, but thy will be done. And the story goes on to say that he was taken by the Roman soldiers. He was betrayed by a kiss from his own disciple, Judas, who desired a new kingdom, but he didn't want to do it by the manifesto. He didn't want to do it the way that Jesus said. He wanted to find happiness through political activism and military might overthrowing the Roman government. And he missed it. He missed it so that the Bible lets us know that he hung himself. And he had that money and he had to throw it back. And then even those no good for nothing Judaizers didn't want to handle it. And they just threw it down. But I tell you what. He, if he could tell you today, life does not consist of the abundance of things that men possess. Because now he is the son of perdition. He is gone to hell. God makes it really clear that he repented of himself, but he didn't repent to the Lord. He felt sorry for what he did because it didn't work out the way he wanted it to work out. Not that he was mournful over his sin and he was hungry and thirsty for righteousness. But the story goes on. Because our king, the one who gives this manifesto, the Bible says that they whooped him all night long. They took him through kangaroo courts. Kangaroo courts are trumped up courts that are designed to be a deception in themselves. It first started with Annas. Then he went on to Caiaphas. And from Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin. Then from the Sanhedrin to Pilate. And then from Pilate to Herod. And then from Herod back to Pilate. Now Pilate could have done the right thing. Because he saw that this man had done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. 
But Pilate was more afraid of the Jews than he was of Jesus. And that's what we got to be careful with too. We can't be more afraid of the world than we are God. Because we start making decisions that forfeit our place in heaven. So we go on with the story and they beat him. They beat his flesh all night long after six kangaroo courts. Then they marched him down the Via Della Rosa. They didn't want to crucify him inside. But they took him outside the camp. And so many times I say, saints of God, it's outside. Jesus Christ is the number one example that is outside. When Jesus really got to the greatest of his work. Because the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He said, looking unto Jesus outside. Hebrews chapter 13 says, let us go outside to Jesus. So there is where everything is going on. That's where all the problems is. That's where the work starts. Is where Jesus died. Jesus died before between two thieves. And one of them had enough good sense to ask to remember me. And he said, this day ye shall be in paradise. And there's some folks outside these walls, in these streets, who need to hear about this day. There's some folk out here that's selling drugs and alcohol and there's some prostitutes. And there's some folk doing any and everything out here. And there's even some folks that dress up in nice suits. And go to nice jobs, driving nice cars, and going right in the same basket unto hell. And they need to know about this day. They need to know about the day that Jesus Christ gave his life for their sins. He gave his life so they wouldn't have to die. That it be a substitution, his life for their life. They need to know that today. This day, on the outside, they need to know that he was on that cross from the third to the ninth hour. This day, they need to know that from the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness was all over the land. This day, they need to know that on the ninth hour, he died. He died a death that nobody else could have died. A death for the sins of the entire world. But that wasn't the end of the story. The Bible says they took him down off of that cross. And they put him in a borrowed tomb. Somebody said, well, when Jesus was all he was, why didn't he have his own tomb? Well, I'm here to let you know because he wasn't going to be there very long. And the Bible says he was in that grave all night, Friday night. He was in that grave all day Saturday. He was in that grave all night Saturday night. But before the crickets began to sing their song. Before the frogs began to do their croak. And your Jesus, my Savior, 
Amen. Amen.